You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part two in our series on Pierre Savignon de Braza. Last time we left the 23-year-old Braza at Libreville in Gabon, ready to head off on his first expedition into the unknowns of Africa. But before we continue with that story, I have a few notes. Note number one. I want to let everyone know that we have started an online store featuring a couple of exploration-related themes. Both of these themes are silhouette images. One is of a ship on the ocean, while the second is of Lewis and Clark, Sacagawea, and their intrepid dog, Seaman, marching across the plains. Both have the words explore on them. These are simple yet fun images, and if you have someone who is an explorer or hiker at heart, well, go check them out on our website, explorerspodcast.com. You can put these images on t-shirts, hoodies, phone cases, mugs, that sort of thing. It's a fun gift for the history or explorer nerd in the family, or yourself if you fit that description. All the proceeds go to supporting the show. Note number two. Remember, look in the show notes for a link to our website, or just go there, explorespodcast.com, and get more info on the episode, including a map, photos, and a list of resources. Note number three. I want to stress that there will be a lot of variances in the names of African places, people, and ethnic groups that we encounter in this series. Thus, the term that I use for the name of an African tribe might be different between sources. It is not a big deal, but I wanted to alert you in case you go reading more about this subject and wonder why the names of people and places are different. Like I said, not a huge deal, but I wanted to let you know about it. And that is it for notes. Let's get going. So, as we said to start, we left Braza in Libreville in the fall of 1875. His expedition was ready to go, laden down with 156 crates, totaling 8 tons of supplies. As a reminder, the expedition consisted of Braza, a doctor named Noel Ballet, a naturalist, Antoine Alfred Marsh, and a quartermaster, Victor Hamann. There were also ten Senegalese marines and a few guides and interpreters. The expedition would depart Libreville on November 3rd and take a steamer down the African coast toward the Ogoué River, which was about 120 miles away. It was another 100 miles up the Ogoué to the village of Lamborini. This was essentially the frontier for white men. To go beyond the village meant negotiating with a succession of native tribes that controlled the river, and who were often fiercely competitive with one another. So, once the steamer reached the Ogoué and began its journey upriver, Braza and his men would be swallowed up by some of the thickest jungles of Central Africa. The men were astounded by the massive trees, with vines hanging down a hundred feet, and then there were the animals, such as crocodiles. And we can't ignore the heat, or the bugs. It was oppressively hot and humid, and the insects were everywhere. 
and once inland, there were no more ocean breezes to cool them off. It was a sauna all day long, unlike anything most of them had ever encountered. At Lamborghini, Brazza would have his first encounter with a true African chieftain, a man named Renoki, who was the chief of the Enigat people. Unless you had a lot of weaponry at your back, no one moved beyond Lamborghini without Renoki's approval and support. And when I say approval and support, I just don't mean the blessing or permission of the man. Remember, Brazza has eight tons of supplies. He had to get it all upriver. That means he needed canoes, rowers, and porters. The chief of the Enigat people was the man who could deliver those things. Now, it is easy to think of this situation as a simple negotiation. You walk in, say what you want, get a price quote, haggle back and forth, and either come to an agreement or not. It's business, and that was the European way. But in Africa, at least in this part of the continent, that was not how things were necessarily done. Here, it was about relationship building, trust, and respect. And that meant time, tact, and patience. And it is something that Brazil will be quite good at. So, once in Lamborghini and introduced to Renoki, Brazza brought the man some gifts, including tobacco, and told him what he wanted. But from there, Brazza did something very un-European-like. He listened, he observed, he waited, and he learned. Brazza watched the African people's ceremonies and dances, ate their food, and asked them questions. He even learned bits of their language. And soon, the distrust between the Enengas and the French expedition began to fade. By doing all of this, Brazza came to understand what the Africans wanted— Yes, they wanted stuff. It was a barter economy, and that was expected. But more than that, they wanted a relationship beyond buyer and seller, and Brazza embraced this. He and Rinoke would spend hours together, sharing tobacco and stories about each other's worlds. And even with the language barrier, Brazza understood how to turn on the charm. It did not take long for the two men to form a bond. And this is the template that Brazza will use going forward. Chiefs such as Rinoke held sway over large chunks of territory along the river, and when entering new territory, Brazza would take the time to gain the trust and friendship of these important chiefs. So, Brazza took in his surroundings, listened, and learned. He also understood that the Africans valued his presence. It meant trade and prestige. Thus, the chief wanted Brazza and his party to stay as long as possible. However, I want to stress that Brazza's patience was not endless. The young man would push when he needed to, and after two months, a deal was finally struck. In exchange for items such as salt, brandy, tobacco, axes, rifles, and gunpowder, Brazza would get canoes and more than a hundred rowers slash porters. And most importantly, he would get the friendship of Renoki and the Enninga people. The expedition departed Lamborghini up the Ogowe River on January 13, 1876, with a total of 12 canoes, each about 50 feet long and 3 feet wide. They were packed to the brim with crates. The journey up the Ogowe would begin most days at dawn. The expedition would travel to about noon, and then have some lunch and rest for a couple of hours, and then move on until about five in the evening. They would then camp on the river's banks and try and stay out of the rain, which was really difficult as it rained a lot. During the days, Brazza took to wearing a turban to shield himself from the sun, which, he was told, made him look like an Arab. In fact, some of the most famous pictures of Brazza show him wearing his turban. Take a look at our website and you can see some of those photos. By the way, Brazza carried a Winchester repeating rifle, he could fire off 14 shots in quick succession, and was reportedly quite a good shot. Over the next weeks and months, the expedition would slowly move up the Ogoway. Braza would grow as a leader during all of this. He was said to have been polite and a good listener, but he did not tolerate the men disobeying his orders. I want to note that Braza often sent Antoine Alfred Marsh ahead to the villages up the river, with a native guide, to pave the way for the rest of the expedition. 
The guide would explain to the village leaders what was coming, and thus a camp could be prepared and everyone welcomed in an appropriate manner. The expedition would reach the village of Samkita on January 16th. At this time, Noel Ballet, the doctor, became sick with malaria. Now, malaria was inevitable. Pretty much everyone got the disease in this region of Africa. It was just a matter of time. Malaria is primarily transmitted by mosquitoes, and there were lots and lots of mosquitoes. Now, there are different types of malaria, and how severe you got it all depended. Symptoms typically included fever, fatigue, vomiting, and headaches. Severe cases could lead to seizures, coma, and death. And another nasty thing about malaria is that if it is not treated properly, you can have recurrences of the disease months and even years later. Quinine was the most common treatment for malaria, but that had its own side effects, and it was not always available. Generally, time and rest was the best thing for an infected individual. Ballet's illness was doubly hard as he was the doctor, and Braza dreaded going forward without a physician. But he had no choice. Braza would leave Ballet in the care of the quartermaster, Victor Hammond, in Samkaida and push onward. The big dugout canoes would head up the Ogoway and into a difficult series of rapids, and the result would be deadly. Seven of the boats would overturn, and many supplies would be lost. But more importantly, several rowers would fall into the rapids and drown. Braza was devastated by this. He had seen these men swallowed by the rapids, and there was nothing he could do to help them. It was his first real encounter with death as a commander. The expedition would eventually pass the rapids and reach the village of Lope on February 10th. Braza and his men were now in the land of the Okandas. Before reaching Lope, Braza had many long conversations with his guides, learning about the Okanda, Shaiwi, and Duma tribes to the east, and what to expect from them. By the way, Marsh, the expedition's naturalist, had reached Lope a few years earlier, and his encounter had been a typical European one. Marsh had gotten into a dispute with some of the members of the Bakalai tribe, and he would take their leader hostage after being threatened. Marsh would then demand a sheep as a fine for their insolence. The Bakalai, not wanting their chief killed, complied. Marsh then slaughtered the animal and had it thrown into the river, a way to show his contempt for the Africans. Marsh, as you can imagine, did not always see eye to eye with Braza with regards to his interactions with the natives. Some say he resented being bossed around by a man nearly a decade younger, and that he felt Braza was, at times, not firm enough with the natives. The encounters at Lope would be different under Braza, who understood something very important. Winning the moment often meant losing the long game. Let me explain that. As Marsh had learned in his previous encounter with the Bakalai people, he had won that situation. He had intimidated them and had shown them who was boss. But there were ramifications for that. He would be dogged by problems after the incident, including being robbed of a bunch of goods, and he would have several of his canoes mysteriously get carried out on the river and sunk. Braza understood that you could use fear and intimidation and violence to get what you wanted, but there will come a moment when the target of your bullying will fight back, or walk away when you need help. Braza was determined to build a positive relationship with the native peoples so that his long-term goals could be obtained and those goals included establishing a line of friendly trade partners all along the Ogoway River. So, the village of Lope was not a big one, but upon Braza's arrival, it was bustling with activity as it was the time of year to conduct the slave market between the Enenga and Okanda tribes. This is where the buyers and sellers of slaves would come together to make deals. The entire process appalled Braza, and he longed to do something about the situation, but in reality, he had no choice but to endure it and endure it he must, as his expedition was now stalled, for a few reasons. The first was that his Enenga rowers were going home. Their contract with Braza ended at Lope, and thus Braza would have to negotiate with the local Okanda chiefs for more rowers and permission to go upriver. 
The second reason Braza was stuck was that the waters of the Ogilvy were now too high and very dangerous. Even if Braza had rowers, they said it was not safe, and they would not move out until the river levels receded. And the third reason was malaria. Braza, as well as some of the soldiers and one of the interpreters, would get the disease. Braza would stay in Lope to recover, but the sickest of the men would be sent back to Samkaida. So, while stuck in Lope and recuperating from his bout with malaria, Braza would take the time to listen and learn. He would introduce himself to the local chiefs, sketch the flora and fauna, and make astronomical observations with his sextant. The latter caused many of the local people to believe that Braza was talking to the stars, and they began to call him a shaman. Braza did not discourage this talk, as it gave him a mystique that he found he could use to his advantage. Also, Braza and his men would put on a display of fireworks for the locals, which thrilled everyone and only enhanced his reputation as some sort of wizard. Now, before Braza moved on from Lope, there would be an incident that would make him famous. One night, a slave came to Braza, begging him for protection. This was an awkward moment. Braza despised slavery, but he could not ignore the laws and customs of the local people, especially if he wanted to get out alive. Thus, Braza did something rather stunning. He bought the man from the owner and promptly freed him. It was a move that shocked everyone. In short order, word would spread about the white man who bought and freed slaves, and others would soon arrive in Braza's camp. Now, the information that I get next is a bit conflicting, but the net result will be the same. Braza initially appears to have bought the freedom of a handful of slaves, but later he would buy the freedom of an additional 20 or so men. For this latter group, it is said that Braza had a ceremony where he stood by a flagpole flying the French flag. He then announced, quote, This flag is the symbol of France. In our country, no man has the right to hold another man as slave. Any slave that touches the flagpole will be free. End quote. All the slaves he had bought came up and touched the pole, and each of their chains was shattered. They were now free, and Braza offered each a job as a rower and porter, which they all accepted. As you can imagine, this was a powerful display. The locals were a bit upset by Braza's behavior and impressed at the same time. Braza was freeing slaves, which can upset societal balances, and that makes people nervous. But he was also marking himself as someone different than the white man who had come before him. He was freeing Africans, not enslaving them. There was something to admire in what he had done. No matter, as word spread about Braza's deeds, he would quickly gain a reputation amongst the people as a powerful and important man. And at the same time, he would be given a new nickname, the Father of Slaves. Now, regarding the freeing of slaves, I want to note that no doubt Braza felt he was doing a good thing in freeing these men, but we should know that there may have been some self-interest involved as well. Let me explain. A key tactic of slavers is to move those they enslave from their homeland. By doing so, you give a slave limited options if they want to escape. If they don't know the local language or have family or friends to turn to, a slave is less likely to run away, because the options just stink. With that in mind, we should note that the slaves freed by Braza were almost all from the Duma tribe, which was far upriver. Braza figured that if he freed these slaves, they would have nowhere to go, not when they were stranded a hundred miles from their home, and thus they would be happy to join up with the powerful white shaman and head into the direction of their home as rowers and porters. It was better than just being cut loose in the middle of nowhere, with no friends or money, and a limited ability to communicate with those around you. Thus, Braza's gesture was probably a bit self-serving. But as I said, Braza really did despise slavery. That is not in dispute. Now, I want to mention that these slaves did, almost to a man, join with Braza. But most would leave him sooner or later, especially once they got back to their home regions. 
However, a handful of these men would become devoted to Braza and serve with him through thick and thin. To them, he was the father of slaves. So it was April of 1876, and Braza, now recovered from his bout with malaria, was ready to move on from Lope. However, the Okandans kept saying that the river was still too high, and they could not provide Braza with any rowers to continue up the Ogoe. This was the result of the local chief's reluctance to let Braza and his expedition move on. The chiefs just liked having Braza and his expedition there. It meant money and prestige for them. Frustrated by the situation, Braza decided to take matters into his own hands. He would seek an audience with the chief of the Shaiwi people, the next tribe to the east. The chief's name was Mamiaka. The Shaiwi were a warrior tribe who filed their teeth into points and wore necklaces of human bones. They were a fearsome sight and the exact kind of people that Europeans probably imagined lived throughout Africa. Well, a meeting would be arranged and things would go well. Raza had studied the customs of the Shaiwi and thus showed proper respect to the chief and turned on his own charms. He would then score some points by putting on a display of marksmanship for the chief in his court. As we will see shortly, all of this effort will pay off very nicely in the near future for the French expedition. Now, I want to point out that, for all that he had done in his six months in Africa, Braza had not really gone any further than any other white man. He had traveled about 200 miles up the Ogoe, but others had done that before. Yes, he had earned a lot of goodwill along the river, but he wanted to move on, and his legendary patience was running thin. The chiefs were delaying him, hoping to gain more concessions, but Braza was tired of the game. Thus, with the help of the Enenga chief, Renoki, he called a meeting of the tribes who lived up and down the river. Renoki would urge the chiefs to give Braza safe passage and support. This was the kind of thing that Braza had earned by befriending the man. To have the influential chief in his corner was a major plus. Of course, Braza would present his own argument as well. He did this by setting a pile of valuable goods on one side. On his other side, he set his rifle. Essentially, he was telling them to choose one or the other. Work with him and become rich as a trade partner, or don't, and face others who would follow, and they would not be so accommodating. It was a rare time where Braza drew a line in the sand, and it worked. The Shaiwi agreed to help. Zabur, a nephew of Chief Mamiaka, along with 14 warriors, would lead Braza east, overland, to a point 100 miles upriver. There they would introduce Braza, as a friend, to the Duma tribe. The rest of the expedition would follow in canoes once enough rowers could be hired. So Braza would depart in May along with his best interpreter, a man named Dennis, and two Senegalese marines, as well as a few porters. Antoine Alfred Marsh, Victor Haman, and Noel Ballet, the latter recovered from malaria, would remain in Lope until they were ready to proceed up the river with the canoes. It would leave Braza as the only European in the advance party. This was all a pretty big deal, as Braza was now venturing into territory that no European had ever gone. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The march overland would be slow. The jungle was dense and difficult to penetrate, and the rains often flooded the jungle floor, 
forcing the men to use dead tree trunks to cross over pooled water. At times, the party managed only five to six miles a day. Thankfully, the Shaiwi were excellent guides. They knew where to find dry spots to camp and could bring Braza and his men to the occasional village. Braza was, as you can imagine, a source of astonishment to most of the natives they came across. Most had never seen a white man. In mid-June, the small party, after a march of a hundred miles, would reach the Ogoway River at a place called the Duma Falls. Here, the tall explorer would be introduced to the local Duma chief, a man named King Jumba. Now, here with the Duma people, even Braza's legendary negotiating skills and charm would not be able to help him. King Jumba talked a good game, saying that he wanted to help and so forth, but he found every excuse to keep Braza from advancing up the Ogoe. It was a frustrating time, and Braza even got into a heated argument with Jumba about the delays. Shortly thereafter, after eating a meal with Jumba, Braza would get severely sick, and some suspected that Jumba had poisoned him. No matter, Braza and his men would finally be given canoes and rowers and allowed to continue. Braza, despite being sick, departed in late July. However, it seems Jumba was going to be a bit of a jerk about all of this. It seems that the king was worried that if Braza died while in his care, other white men might come and blame him for the death. Thus, he wanted Braza gone. So, once Braza's canoe got out of his territory, the native rowers had orders to abandon them. They did this by trying to tip the canoe. Their goal was to swamp the canoe, swim to shore, and run off. Braza was too sick to give chase, and he would be stuck in the middle of nowhere without any supplies or friends. Well, when this plan was hatched, as you can imagine, Braza and his marines were not just going to sit there and let it happen. A fight would break out, and two natives would be shot. The rest would flee, leaving an exhausted and sick Braza, plus his two marines and guide, stranded on the river. Things looked pretty bleak, but then, the next day, 22 canoes would appear on the Ogoway, led by Marsh and Ballet. Victor Hominid remained in Lope, which was pretty much the expedition's major supply depot. Ballet and Marsh would find their commander in a sorry state. He was sick and malnourished and suffering from severe fatigue. He needed a long rest. Thus, on August 24th, the expedition would set up camp in the village of Nakime. Braza would stay there for nearly two months while he recovered. While Braza recuperated, Marsh would reconnoiter up the Ogawe, which was now taking a southerly turn. Also, the white men began to hear stories about a great water to the east. This intrigued them all. By late October, Braza would be ready to travel again, and he would head back downriver to Lope to get Hammond and supplies. I want to note that Braza's supply line was working. He could get a steady supply of goods sent up the river, and he and his people could travel in relative safety. This was because all the deals he had struck with the chiefs up and down the Ogaway. Even King Jumba, who some suspect tried to poison him, became an ally. So, the trip down the river to Lope would again tax Braza. He was exhausted, and his lungs were heavily congested. Once in Lope, he would have to spend several more months recovering his health. During this time, Braza would see a change in the world around him. The fact is, he was now a celebrity. He was the white shaman and the father of slaves. People would come to see him, and it was considered good luck to have Braza touch a baby. This was a powerful mix of respect, awe, and admiration, and it is something that many in the region would forever have for the man. Braza would spend the winter recuperating and then head back upriver in March of 1877. He had 33 canoes. A 4,000-franc loan from his family had allowed him to purchase and transport more supplies to his base. So, up the river went Braza, bringing Hammond with him this time. Eventually, the four Europeans would reunite for the first time in more than a year. Braza and his men would have some issues that summer when the Okandan rowers brought smallpox with them, 
spreading it to some of the villages along the route. Dr. Ballet and Braza would work with the villagers to try to stop the outbreak, delaying their advance up the Ogoe. But soon enough, the expedition would continue on. There was now four Europeans, ten Marines, and four interpreters. The rowers were now mostly Duma people, who Braza had scared by trading rifles, bowls, knives, beads, and clothing. Braza was warned that the lands ahead were dangerous, occupied by the Bateki people. On August 6, 1877, the expedition would reach the Passa River. When you work in all the twists and turns and bends, they had traveled about 600 miles from the coast. Now they could go no further. The waters were becoming unnavigable. Braza would write, quote, The Ogoe has no more secrets from us. It is now clear that its course was of only secondary importance, with no direct access to the center of the African continent. End quote. Now, the supposed six-month expedition of Braza had left France two years before, so you would think it was time to go home. Ah, but there was more out there. To Braza, the mission wasn't complete. The Ogoe was not the great waterway that he had hoped for, but there were still lands to the east, and the mysterious great water that the Africans spoke of. Braza, no doubt, still hoped to make a grand discovery. Ballet and Hammond were game to keep exploring, but Antoine Alfred Marsh was not. The naturalist was ready to go home, and thus he would depart. Marsh, by the way, would return to France and detail his findings to the public. He hardly mentioned Braza in his writings. Marsh, for our story, is done. However, we should note that he had a respected career as a naturalist. In addition to the three expeditions to Africa he had completed, he would later spend time in the Philippines and the Mariana Islands. He would publish many works and be awarded the French Legion of Honor for his service to his country. He died in 1898 at the age of 54. And with that, back to our story. Braza would befriend the Bateki people, and he would push east on foot. And I want to point out, he and his men were now barefoot. Their shoes and boots were, by this time, rotted away. They were forced to walk like the local natives, without footwear. The expedition would head into hilly, rugged territory. I have read that Braza had difficulty hiring porters for the overland trek, so he bought some slaves, with the intention of freeing them. However, he would not actually free them until they had completed their mission with them. I do not know if this is true, but I would not be surprised if that had happened. So as winter approached, Braza would set up camp. He and his men would spend the next few months recuperating from their travels and stockpiling food for their upcoming journey. The French camp that winter would be sort of a trading hub for the native peoples. The tribes, which often didn't interact with each other, now came to see the white men and at the same time traded with each other. In the spring, Braza and his expedition headed east on foot. Progress was slow as they had few porters, forcing them to make two and three trips to advance all the supplies. The terrain would rise up into the Bataki Plateau, a dry, sandy region that offered little food for the men. About a hundred or so miles east of where they had left the Ogoway, the expedition would come to a river called the Alima. This, they were told, led to the Big Water. What Braza didn't realize was that the Big Water spoken of by the natives was not a lake, but the Great Congo River. The explorers were now only about a hundred miles from the Congo, but again they did not realize it. Braza was warned by the Bataki that the fierce Bobangi people controlled the river. They would not take kindly to anyone carrying a bunch of trade goods into their territory. But Braza was determined to seek them out and continue his way down the Alima, which he had been told had no rapids. However, the Bobangi were not to be trifled with. They were a powerful tribe, led by a man named Chief Balunza. And the Bobangi had firearms, although these were muskets, which were vastly inferior to the weaponry of the French expedition. Still, Braza pushed on. 
In July, on the river, he found a Babangi village and a chief who was a rival of Balunza that allowed him to purchase eight canoes, all in need of repair and at high prices. Down the river went the explorers. Braza's next encounters with the Babangi were met with mixed results, but then, as the little fleet descended, it was clear things were not going to be easy. Gunshots would come from the nearby riverbanks and villages, and then armed Babangi in canoes began to chase Braza and his men. Once the shooting started, Braza's party retreated to the banks of the river and prepared for a fight. That night, Braza could hear singing and drums from up and down the river. He said, quote, We could hear our enemies chanting that we were the meat for their victory banquet. End quote. Egad, that sounds like fun. Anyhow, the next morning, 30 Babangi canoes, each packed with warriors, attacked the French expedition. The Babangi chief, Balunza, stood at the head of the assault and earned the admiration of Braza, who wrote, quote, I will always remember the man who was in the lead canoe, upon which we concentrated our fire. He never ceased to stand tall and wave a charm over his head. He was preserved from the bullets that rained around him. End quote. Despite the bravery of the Bobangi, they were no match for the Europeans and the Senegalese marines, who had the latest rifles and knew how to use them. The Bobangi would be repulsed several times before retiring for the night. At this point, Braza would dig in and hope the Bobangi would negotiate with them, but that was not going to happen. The Babangi, in addition to being major slave traders, ran a sophisticated commercial network on the river, and they had no interest in letting anyone else in on their market. Thus, Braza now had a decision to make. He could push on and hope to slip past the Babangi, or he could retreat. After assessing his ammunition supply, Braza decided on the latter. He would have to pull back. That night, the French abandoned their canoes and any supplies they could not carry, and made for a friendly Bateki village. Frankly, a retreat was overdue. The men were exhausted and sick. They wore rags and had no shoes or boots. Food and ammunition was low. It was time to head home. Well, not quite time to head home. Braza would go on one last foray into the wild himself, with six marines and ten porters. He went east, reaching the Koyu River, also a tributary of the Congo, where he again ran into natives who warned them that large fleets of heavily armed Babangi traders, with as many as a hundred canoes, would come up river on occasion. With that news, and the rainy season on the horizon, Braza decided it was time to head back. He would rejoin his French comrades on September 9th. The return journey to the Atlantic coast was mostly uneventful. The people along the river greeted Braza warmly along the way. His three years of diplomacy, exploration, and negotiations gave him a network of allies all the way up and down the Ogawe. Braza and his men would reach Libreville in October of 1878. There were two casualties along the way, as Dennis, the party's trusted interpreter, and Samba Gamu, one of the Senegalese marines, would become ill and die. Braza and his companions would head home in November, and a two-month voyage would take them back to Bordeaux on January 6, 1879. It had been roughly three and a half years since Braza and his men had departed from that very port. The young naval officer was older than his 27 years, not to mention thinner and wearier. He had experienced more than most men ever dreamed of in their lives. And we should note that things had changed in France in those three-plus years. When Braza had departed in 1875, few people knew or cared about what he was up to, but that had changed dramatically. The big reason for this was Henry Morton Stanley, the famed African explorer and journalist. You see, Stanley had returned the year before from one of the most extensive and revealing expeditions of exploration in history, crossing the African continent in the process. He had traveled 7,000 miles, exploring Lakes Victoria and Tanganyika and the Congo River. The crossing of the continent had opened up possibilities to the world, and nations began to line up to exploit those possibilities. 
Stanley was now a worldwide celebrity, and his book would be a huge success. People, even in France, could not get enough of Africa. And thus, when the 27-year-old Brazza reached France, tall, thin, and still handsome, he was hailed as a hero. In Europe, they celebrated his accomplishments, even if they paled compared to Stanley's. Brazza's expedition had mapped hundreds of miles of a kind of big river. They had found new plants and animals. They had researched tropical diseases and brought knowledge of the many tribes in the region. And Brazza had done it, for the most part, peaceably, unlike Stanley. The anti-slavery crowd loved his humane approach toward exploration, and government and business interests were intrigued by what he had found. And so Brazza would be feted throughout Europe. Amongst the awards he received were the French Legion of Honor and the Paris Geographical Society's gold medal, which Stanley had been given just the year before. And while Brazza no doubt enjoyed all the accolades and attention, he wasn't a raging egomaniac who demanded the spotlight. Thus he was gracious with his praise. He acknowledged the contributions of his men, including the Senegalese Marines, and fought for them to get promotions and rewards. So, what was next for Brazza? Well, the French government would promote him to lieutenant junior grade, and they would deem his expedition a success. And more importantly, they saw other European nations setting their sights on gaining control of Africa, the big rival being King Leopold of Belgium. And thus, it would not take long for the French government to arrange for Brazza's return to Africa for a second expedition. But that will be for our next episode. And thus we will leave Brazza, but I will wrap up with a quick understanding of what he had done on this expedition and what we have learned about Brazza as a person. So first thing is, Brazza had effectively mapped the Ogoway River. That was important. Not earth-shatteringly important, but still important. And the relationships he had established with the chiefs along the river offered enormous opportunities. Again, that was really good stuff. And second, this is really intriguing, Brazza knew how to get to the Congo River. Remember, when he was there, Brazza had not known that the Alima River led to the Congo, but by now, after seeing the information from Stanley's expedition, he realized what he had. He knew that you could travel up the Ogawe and then go overland to another river, such as the Alima, and reach the Congo. Remember, there were rapids on the Congo that made using it an impossibility for long stretches. Brazza now had a route that would go around those rapids. That offered a lot of interesting opportunities, which we will explore in our next episode. The final thing I want to mention is about Brazza himself. The man had proven to be a rather remarkable individual. He was brave and resourceful and compassionate. His curiosity and willingness to listen and learn is a wonderful contrast to his contemporaries. His ability to connect with people had helped him do some pretty amazing things, and the network he had established still existed, and Brazza was looking to use those connections on his return to the region. But let's point out, Brazza was not a saint, which some people have painted him as. He was not a pacifist, and he was not above manipulating others for his own advantage. So that is it. This has been a really good story, and there is more to come. In our next episode, Brazza will head back to Africa, and this time he has a rival. Well, really two rivals. Or maybe a rival and a bad guy is a better description. The rival is the legendary Henry Morton Stanley, arguably the most famous African explorer in the world, who is heading back to the region in the pay of King Leopold of Belgium, who is our bad guy. It is all part of the high-stakes and very deadly scramble for Africa. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world 
without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.